Welcome to the 36th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast where Mark, Patrick and I speak about the post-punk or new wave period of the late 70s and early 80s. In the podcast description, you will see a link to a Spotify playlist that will feature a lot of the songs you will hear throughout the podcast. There is also a link to our Instagram and Facebook pages, and you can find us on Twitter at Pleasures Known. By the way, there's a particular German industrial band referenced in this podcast whose name we couldn't pronounce, so we got in a friend to help. Einstürzende Neubauten. Now here is Patrick to introduce today's episode of Known Pleasures, or as we're known in Germany, Bekannte Freuden. In 1981, a yogurt factory worker, a window dresser, and two blokes employed by an insurance company at a bank somehow conjured up one of the most irresistible songs of the decade. 40 years and 100 million records later, including 35 top 20 hits in the UK, Depeche Mode are solid gold electronic rock royalty. How a bunch of shy young lads from Basildon on the outskirts of London transformed themselves from self-confessed wimps with synths into stadium-filling global rock gods is one of the stranger, more compelling stories of the post-punk era. In this episode, we join the band for the first part of their expedition, from the sparkling pop of Just Can't Get Enough to the industrial clank of People Are People, losing members, attracting the scorn of the media, and wearing a skirt or two along the way. So, let's speak and spell it out for our listeners about Depeche Mode. Well, I just want to start off by saying to our millions of loyal followers, the um, <laughs> there will be quite a few hardcore Depeche Mode fans listening in. And uh, we should remind these listeners that <laughs> we will be concentrating on the first four albums, which uh, our podcast generally discusses the music between 78 and 85. 84, actually. Oh, 84? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think it's March 85. <laughs> We're very specific about our timelines here at Known Pleasures. Mm. Um, so unlike any other band that we've ever discussed, we may be overlooking their most popular period or indeed their most creative period. What do you guys think about that? Or our favourite albums. Or our favourite albums, <laughs> yes, that's right. We will be discussing their earlier synth pop career, which is worthy of discussion. I think so. But first of all, we should head on down to Essex. And in particular, Basildon. One solution was to move a large part of the population away from the smoky, noisy and crowded capital out into newly created communities where they could live, work and play in healthy surroundings. This is how our town of Basildon in Essex was born. Sometimes with bands, they come from all over the place and, you know, it's like, where, where do you start? But here, it's the big B. Do you know where Basildon is? Uh, no. There's a TV show... On in the UK called The Only Way is Essex. Have you heard about this? Yes. Mm. It's set in Brentwood and it's apparently given Essex a bit of a bad name. And Basildon yeah. is only, Basildon is actually only one hour from there if you go through Billericay. <laughs> As Ian Jury frequently did. Yes. <laughs> I thought I'd link that back to our Ian Jury podcast. Yeah. Um, it's known as Bas Vegas in, um, oh, really? in uh, well, nowhere at all. Although there is a leisure park, which is known as Bas Vegas, which is the Basildon Festival Leisure Park. I hear it's great there. They've got crazy golf. Be that as it may. Basildon. <laughs> Yeah, so it was one of the new towns that was established after the Second World War. London being bombed out, they needed to find places to locate people. And a few of these were kind of dotted mainly around London, including Crawley, 
uh, where the cure came from, and uh, Basildon was another one of them. And these places are kind of seen as being a bit soulless, a bit lacking in character. They, you know, haven't got much history for obvious reasons. Is uh, it a great breeding ground for a synth-pop band? Well, the thing about Depeche Mode is that they didn't have any particular character anyway because they were just four suburban, they were just four ordinary lads, weren't they? That's what makes their story interesting. Mm. I, I don't think Basildon sort of drove them to any great ambition. It was just probably Vince Clark mm. or Vince Martin, as his real name is, oh. to form the band. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. They may have known each other vaguely. Andy Martin and Vince, to some degree, knew each other through, I think, Boys Brigade, which was kind of like a Christian organisation that um, that did good work. Mm. Uh, So they were kind of nerdy guys. The interest in music was kind of limited, I think, to just kind of mucking around a little bit. Though when Vince and Andy decided to start a band in 1977 called No Romance in China, I think it wasn't really too serious. Over the years, that sort of... uh, moved forward until such time as Martin Gore got involved. He was playing in a band called French Look, while the other two were playing in a band called Composition of Sound, if I'm not mistaken. Had Vince and Andy, they played bass and guitar together? Andy played bass. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Vince played guitar. But the whole synth thing didn't happen till quite a bit later than that. Yeah. There's actually a great photo of um, Martin Gore playing guitar in a band called Norman and the Worms. (laughs) <laughs> prior to this. In 1979, actually, you think he might have he might have been a little bit more ahead of the game in 1979, but having had a listen to it, it's it's pretty it's bad a- too. So, yeah, <laughs> the three of them, as in Vince Martin rather than Vince Clark, which is his real name, had been sort of kicking around in this format for a little while prior to Dave joining. Composition of Sound being the last name they took before changing to the name we're all familiar with. Composition of Sound were going great guns. The only thing they didn't have was a drummer or a singer. So, Mm. you know, they decided to, you know, forego the drummer. I guess they had some kind of drum machine kind of rhythm track happening. Well, they had a bit of an epiphany. We should talk about that, about turning over to electronic music because that's not where any of them started. I think, uh, obviously, you know, you had Kraftwerk, but you also had OMD. I think that's when they first heard OMD, that was a big thing. Mm. I think OMD was the turning point. Ultravox were around and Gary Newman had been around. And if you listen to the demos of compositions, then you can hear a very definite Gary Newman influence. But, yeah, they decided that, well, Vince didn't want to be the lead singer. Lights on, switch on your eyes He was very shy. They were all quite shy, so they decided that they did need someone up front. Dave's mother was a ticket inspector on the buses and uh, his dad worked in the offices of Shell Oil and played saxophone in a big band. And it was all going, I think, fairly sort of swimmingly until Dave's dad died when he was about 10, which was a double blow. And this is an extraordinary kind of drama for young Dave, that when his dad died, he discovered that his mum had previously been married to someone else, a fellow named Len, and had still been with her first husband, with Len, when Dave was born. So Len was actually his biological father. So on the death of his father, in inverted commas, he discovered that his biological father was someone else. And as Dave said, there was always distrust for people you were meant to feel safe with after that. And Dave did go off the rails for, for a few years there. He got into trouble for um, graffiti 
uh, he used his own name as a tag. He said, I was arrested a fair few times. I was not a very good villain. Probably don't use your own name if you're graffitiing. And he also said, we'd steal cars from garages, drive them around a bit, leave them in a field somewhere and set them alight. Just of normal course. teenage hijinks there. teenage kids. <laughs> I, I never set a car alight in mine. Well, you were a bit strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So that's Dave. Yeah, and he was also into punk. He was a member of the Damned fan club. Followed um, the Damned around. Were composition of sound rehearsing and then they heard Dave rehearsing with another band or mucking around with another band in the next room, something like that? I think Dave was just helping out a mate's band, lugging gear and, and sort of just one of the hangers-on and he kind of had a go on the mic a few different other, other people did as well. And they heard him uh, sing David Bowie's Heroes through the walls. Vince's ears pricked up and said, that could be someone we could use. Yeah. And history was made. So, um, yeah, they got Dave into the band. He looks great. He can sing a bit. He's now the lead singer of the nascent Depeche Mode, still called Composition of Sound at this stage. And they weren't really mates. This is one of the weird things about them, that they didn't kind of become a gang. Vince said very specifically, we didn't go out to dinner or go to the pub or anything like that. Mm. It's like, you know, we didn't really like each other that much, <laughs> seemed to be the kind of subtext to it. They were very matter of fact about it because you had these guys working in the day jobs that I mentioned in the intro. They were just a bunch of guys playing a bit of music and it probably would have gone nowhere, but there was one particular member of the band. It was kind of his band, really. He was the one doing all the running around, doing, doing all the hard work. Mm. Would you say, Mark? Well, yeah, look, I think without Vince Clark, there was no Depeche Mode. There was nothing. They would never have amounted to anything because he had the ambition. He was a bit of a one-man show. He describes himself as a, you know, a bit power-hungry and, a, you know, he control freak. He has to sort of be in charge of everything. So without him pushing everything, the others were very shy and kind of reticent to do anything. This is now 1980, we should mention. Yep. And things start to happen with that demo. They hawk the demo around as young bands are wont to do after doing a few gigs here and there, getting a generally good response. It's the time of electronic music because after punk, electronic music sounds exciting. It starts to feel like the new frontier that punk has now no longer laid claim to. Mm. Mm. And it's hard to hear that now, but when you go back to the late 70s, early 80s and think about just hearing a drum machine, that was kind of revolutionary and hearing synth stabs and, and bass yeah, lines. Yeah, yeah. Punk attracted musicians that weren't that adept at playing. Mm. I think a similar thing happened with electronic music. Even more so with synths and drum machines. Like these guys talk about it was even easier than playing punk because mm. you could just play one or two fingers. You didn't even yeah. have to learn three chords. Mm. You yeah, could yeah, just yeah. literally stand there and just play one. The yeah. synth did the work. Yeah, and it was actually genius when you think about it to actually take that route. Mm. And surprising that more people didn't. And synthesizers in those early days, most of them, you could only play one note at a time anyway. They were monophonic. Mm. So you couldn't play a chord even if you wanted to. Yeah. Well, as I say, to me, it felt like that was the exciting new music and Depeche Mode fit into that really well, except there were other people doing it equally or well or better at that stage. The story goes that no one was interested in, in the demo. They took it around to Rough Trade Records, renowned independent label, played it to them. They liked it but said it wasn't for them. And if you know anything about rough trade, you can understand why it wasn't. <laughs> but they said there's a guy here who might be interested in it, Daniel Miller. So they grabbed him. He'd recently started a small label called Mute and had put out his own stuff on there under the name of The Normal. Mm. A really revolutionary track called Warm Leatherette. Warm Leatherette. Which mm. Grace Jones subsequently covered a few years later. 
sounds like nothing else and it really captured people's imaginations and I think they really wanted to impress him but he was he had a quick listen to it and basically dismissed them and walked out he also had Fat Gadget on his label Mm. Um, the perfect home for them you might think but he wasn't interested (laughs) well it wasn't a great demo if you've heard it it does sound a little bit sort of the kind of pristine sparkling pop hasn't yet happened it is a little bit kind of dirty Well, it's your standard four-track demo that mm. bands record when you're, you know, 16 or 17 yeah, yeah. or whatever age they were. We should say um, they were young guys. Like Vince was born in 1960, so, you know, at this point he's 20. Mm. Andy, 19... he, was, he was the oldest. Yeah, Andy, 1960. Uh, Martin, 61. Uh, Dave, 62. So, you know, they're, they're young guys, so they're not really, you know, au fait with any of this. But um, all that changes when Daniel Miller, Daniel Miller goes <laughs> to see them play live and his head is completely turned and he's like, they were fantastic live yeah, and yeah, it yeah, changed my mind about it. They supported Fad Gadget on uh, November the 12th, 1980 at the Bridge House. Yeah, that's right. And uh, he also said that they had geometric haircuts, Jerry Anderson costumes and always looked terribly serious. And he said they were a synth-pop bromide, which I thought was great. <laughs> this is how synth-pop bands would look like <laughs> and sound like for, for the next Yeah, yeah, yeah. In November 1980, they hadn't released anything, but there was a story about them in the Basildon Echo. And I don't know what was in the story, but the actual headline was, Posh Clobber Could Clinch It For Mode. So it was the posh clobber as in the, <laughs> the, the clothes. fancy clothes they were wearing. It's like, that's what's going to clinch it Actually, for the mode. did like, you read the article? Because yeah. it's the opposite of that. Oh, really? It says what they need is some posh clobber. Oh, really? A visit to a tailor <laughs> would do, would do oh, them wonders. An, oh, so, so their clobber wasn't posh enough? No. It was basically saying no. they need to get an image. Dave was a bit of a lad about town. It was always a dresser and a bit of a face. And he oh, knew how to present himself, yeah, yeah, which is fifty percent of the reason he was given the lead singer's job. The others were just like they looked like they went to Boys Brigade three nights a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> they had no idea. So they, they were saying you, they need to lift their image. Oh, and that's get, interesting. Can we talk about the fact that they had two things simultaneously recorded and, and almost released at the same time? The song "Photographic" was to be included on a compilation of electronic music, some bizarre album. In the meantime, Daniel Miller had signed them to Mute and uh, was recording their first album. So January 81, Photographic came out, and then Dreaming of Me, the first single, came out in February. In the meantime, we should backtrack a little bit, and they had decided on the name Depeche Mode sometime in the middle of that year, I think. So that was when they decided that composition of sound wasn't quite up to it. Whereas I don't think Depeche Mode is a huge improvement, improvement on it. <laughs> no, no. It's it was, a sideways it was, step. Wasn't it a French magazine or Yeah, it's a French magazine that Dave uh, used to reference as a window dresser. So they, they could have been called Marie Claire or Vogue. French Vogue. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. right. Well, Dave was a, a window dresser at this time. Vince worked in a yogurt factory. Yep, yep. Martin was working in a bank and Andy was in insurance. So this yeah. is how ordinary, utterly ordinary they are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dave is the only one with any sort of creative kind of job, I suppose. Yeah, And yeah, so, yeah, yeah he, he took the name from uh, the magazines that he used to use. Was yeah. One of them was, was Depeche Mode. And they had actually chosen Depeche Mode rather than Peter Benetti's Boots. Or Runny Smile. Yeah. Runny Smile is genius, if you ask me. That's great. <laughs> so you were, you were saying Peter Benetti was a footballer? Uh, yeah, Peter Benetti was the goalkeeper for the Chelsea Football Club in the 1960s and 1970s. And I've seen photos of his boots and they're not that interesting. So it didn't augur well for the composition of sound if that's the direction they had it in. But no, they they chose Depeche Mode and they even used the funny little accents. Well, what they thought were the right accents for Depeche on their original kind of demos that they handed around, except mm. they, they didn't use them in 
quite accurately, but it was nice that they were kind of trying that they for that trying. extra, you know, effect. Yeah. So as momentum started to build, Vince decided to change his name to Clark because he was on the dole and didn't want to get busted. <laughs> oh, really? For, um, you know, earning any money in yeah. this music caper, which I thought was, was great. And the, the story behind Vince being the driving force in the band is told by um, Andy Fletcher saying that if he earned 30 pounds a week at the yogurt factory, he saved 29 pounds 50 and put it towards yeah, music yeah. and buying synths and so on. So he was really, really behind their initial success, which happened very, very fast when you think about it. Yep. So, yeah, we've, we've got Daniel Miller on board at the controls trying mm. to mould this into something a little bit more slick and a little bit more of his idea of this perfect pop group of silicon teens, if I can use that yeah. phrase. Soft Cell Mark Armand talks about seeing them a second time after they'd signed to Mute and how they had been transformed into this perfect synth pop band. They looked right, they sounded right, everything had just improved out of all sight once Daniel Miller had uh, gotten his hands on them. The great thing about Daniel Miller was that uh, when he signed them to Mute Records, they had a 50-50% profit share, mm. which would have been unheard of for any <laughs> young, new young bands at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Factory were doing that too. There was a lot of, it was an indie label thing. Maybe Rough Trade did too. Yeah, but the interesting thing is that once they had some success and the uh, big record companies started coming around, they said no. Mm. They, they stayed with Mute, which I thought was really good. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. they were smart in that they knew yeah. they needed somebody who would let them do their own thing creatively yeah. rather than just go with the money. And they were offered deals with mm, better, better mm. deals and a lot of money. And when you're yeah. 17, 18 and people are throwing money at you, yeah. you're tempting to take it, but they trusted him with their career. As we'll see, Daniel Miller was a crucial figure everywhere for the band. So, you know, he wasn't just some Svengali. Okay, so... Dreaming of Me. Dreaming, dreaming of, of Me, me the first single, uh, February 81. Three singles off the first album, which was released in October 81. Uh, dreaming of Me, New Life, and the massive, to this day, just can't get enough. This album, going back to it, I don't know how familiar either of you were mm. with it at the time. Graham, I'm going to ask you. I bought the first album. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is probably the only Depeche Mode album I bought at the time. But yeah, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. It felt exciting. Mm. It's simple, but it, yeah, once yeah, again, absolutely. it sounded like nothing that I had really heard. But the thing is, like, I'd heard John Fox's Metamatic True. and, you know, Human League's Travelogue. Yeah. And they were kind of bleak, somber pieces. Cold. Yeah, cold. and Well, that was the kind of style at the time, the Gary Newman thing, you know, I'm from another planet. And but this was... You know, it was all of a sudden in a major key. It was happy. It was like pop melodies. Yeah, harmonies. And harmonies. Yeah. yeah. They're pop songs. They're just done in a very, very mm. simple, yeah, 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 clinical, yeah, yeah. you know, electronic style. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I said, it felt very modern and adventurous to me, and it was just irresistible. I mean, a song like Just Can't Get Enough was, was a massive hit in, here in Australia, for one thing. And it's, it still continues to this day as a as a football song. Sung out at football stadiums, yeah. One of the reasons we started doing this podcast was that we all used to go and see our local football team, soccer team, Sydney FC play. And then after the games, we'd get together to have a drink, we'd talk about the game, and we'd find ourselves talking about post-punk music. And so that was kind of where the 
where this podcast came from. Mm. But, and one of the songs sung at every game by the fans of Sydney FC was Just Can't Get Enough. Mm. Yeah. Incredible. Back, back then and, and, and even now. Even now, yeah. And yeah. even now, worldwide. I think, for the record, Dreaming of Me was on some international editions of the album, but not in every country. So that was the kind of complication. It's Vince Clark's album was what I was going yeah, to say. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's self-produced with Daniel Miller. It was a UK top 10 hit, but it is very much Vince Clark's album, apart from two Martin mm. Gore songs in Tora 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 and Big Muff. I think it's a great album and it kind of stands up as a historical piece. Like it sounds mm. dated in some way and the lyrics are very simplistic and it's, yeah. it's just like kiddie pop music. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's very effective and it's very cleverly done. Mm. Uh, songs like Photographic. really liked puppets as well. Yep. Any second now reminds me of OMD, the instrumental. You have to look at it as a 1981 album. I think it's unfair to put it in the same conversation as later Depeche Mode yeah, albums. Yeah. It's their first yeah. album made by a bunch of young mm. kids. Mm. And to me, it's like they bought the synths and they're just kind of working out how to use them. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. They don't really <laughs> they're, know. They're flicking through all the sounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah, um, yeah. The thing that strikes me the most listening again to this album, and I, like Graham, I heard it at the time, is the arrangements are so clean and clear and it's just every note, every beat is there for a reason. It's absolutely mathematically just mm, amazingly precise. constructed. For an album by a band of, you know, 18, 19, mm, teenagers, tw- yeah, 20-year-olds. And that is Vince Clark and Daniel Miller, the songwriter and the producer, who have just, it's really, really cleverly done. And it looks easy because it's so simple. It's all just kind of nursery rhyme kind of melodies. It's and- deceptively simple, mm. but those songs are still unbelievably you, catchy. Uh, Patrick, do you have any favourites? Uh, Mark, you said photographic and puppets. Mm. Um, absolutely. Uh, just can't get enough. New Life as the opening track, I think it is, on, on mm. the, the version that I was listening to, you know, is just absolutely joyous. I think you would have to have a hard heart not to like <laughs> this album. Like, I just think it's a lovely album. There are two or three songs which could probably be ditched. But even the song, is it What's, what's Your Name? Yeah. The P-R-E-T-T-Y song. Mm. About a pretty boy. It's, it's pretty terrible, but it's mm. still kind of a fun, fun. song. And yeah. Look, yeah. they pitched themselves at a pop audience who were hungry to hear and see something new and exciting. And as I said, after punk kind of went down a one-way street and kind of imploded, these were the sorts of things that were offered. And, yeah, they, and yeah, I remember yeah. loving it. I remember dancing around at a school party yeah, yeah, that just yeah. can't get enough without any preconceptions about whether it was cool or not. Yeah, it yeah. was just really, really catchy. Mm. I mean, their image was a, really a non-image and they were quite daggy in a way, yeah, yeah, yeah. even then, apart from Dave. Yeah. But let's say, yeah, irresistible. And mm. then, you know, this is a massive success. Like, they don't even really know how this happened. This has happened yeah, in yeah. about a year. We're talking about them as if they were kind of naive pop kids, but they were also on the cover of the NME. They were kind of cool in a weird way. Mm. A sample quote from Andy in that interview 
I don't know where this came from, but he was asked about Basildon in the NME interview, and he said, Basildon has a population of 180,000. It's got an electoral roll of 107,000, and that's not including kids. That's the biggest in the country, and next time it has got to be split up into Basildon East and West. <laughs> this, this is how utterly what, normal what kind, these people are. Imagine being the interviewer, mm. and that's what you get from Andy as an answer. What's Basildon like? Mm. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> mm. Do you have any more statistics we could go over? <laughs> this is, well, I think how unused to the whole process they were. Yeah, the album yeah. got really good reviews generally, though. It was sort of received as a breath of fresh air, which is in stark contrast to how they were treated by the media subsequently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were ap- they absolutely slaughtered, uh, you know, down the track. But this was pretty well received, mm, even yeah, by I the hard, so. hardened journalists of Melody Maker and NME. Yeah, mm. yeah. But dark clouds were gathering. Well, I haven't talked about my favourite songs yet, but never mind. Well, we, we, we can carry on to Vince okay. Clark if you like. Well, you can, you can edit that in however you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are your favourite songs, Graham? Thanks. <laughs> are they different to ours? No, they're exactly the same. <laughs> no, they're, they're, it, it is New Life, Voice They Go, Photographic and Just Can't Get Enough. But I just want to mention that Dreaming of Me makes me laugh every time I hear it because, you know, they're, they're not trained singers or anything, but there is a moment where they have to sing the word me and they have to hold this note for quite a long time. And if they had auto-tune at the time, they would have locked them in, but it's it just makes me laugh because I can just imagine Daniel Miller going, you know, can we try that one more time? <laughs> you know, we had our arguments and our problems and everything, and also everything was really new to us. So um, I think the pressure was much greater then. Dark storm clouds were gathering mm, over yes. Depeche Mode's heads. Vince Clark was not happy. There were stories that he uh, didn't turn up for interviews. He travelled in a, a separate part of the bus. He just didn't mix mm, with the regular mm. guys. And in fact, he announced to the uh, rest of the band that he would be leaving before the album was even released. Which, once again, this is all happening incredibly fast. <laughs> yeah. Still all within the first year. Yeah. It? So he's gotten what he wanted. You, you know, you've got this album, you've, you've had, you know, some success and he is not what, it's not what he wants. He's ditched the career at the yogurt or yogurt, if you prefer to pronounce it that 30 way. 30 pounds a week, not anything to be sniffed no, at. No, that's Patrick. right. <laughs> but he did, uh, he did graciously say that he would tour for the, um, for the album. So they basically, I'm breaking up with you, but I'll hang around until yeah, 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 the yeah. end of the tour. But did you hear that before Vince Clark left, he uh, he went along to rehearsal one day with two songs and the band listened to the song and said, we're not playing this, this is rubbish. And one of those songs was a song called Only You. Looking from a window above, it's like a story of love. Can you hear me? Which was... <laughs> A number one around the world for Yazoo at the time. <laughs> yeah. So maybe Vince Clark was a bit frustrated at that. I think it was a number one twice for the Flying Pickets as well. All I needed was the love you gave. All I needed for another day. All I ever knew. Oh, that's right. Yeah, again. Yeah. After that, it's a fantastic song. It was sung by Alison Moyet, who yeah. was another Basildon yeah, girl. Yeah, yeah, yes. What a town! What a place! Mm. What a new town! So the band did what any self-respecting band of that era did: they put an ad in a music paper. And what did the ad say, Patty? The ad said, "Name band 
comma, synthesizer, comma, must be under 21, which is a pretty brutal kind of... Could be anyone. But must be under 21 is a pretty specific. Mm. Yeah. I suppose they didn't want musos. I think they were kind of anti-muso mm. yeah, in yeah. that they didn't want somebody that could come in and just... You know. However, they did get a muso, and he was twenty-two. Well, that's that's the interesting <laughs> yeah, part. They they had a few people turn up that were after they were vetted by Daniel Miller, and uh, one of them was a bloke called Alan Wilder, who'd been around, done a few things, classically trained, very proficient, great grade eight piano. I think. Yeah, and he was able to. They, they were super impressed with him. He was able to play anything that they asked him to play because <laughs> it was very very simple. He thought it was like I I can do this with my eyes closed. <laughs> yeah. Um. They allowed him to join the band mm. to tour with them. Yeah, um, yep. They didn't want to use him on the subsequent album, the second album, A Broken Frame, which he was a little bit put out by. But, yeah, they didn't want overly musician-y people, I yeah, think, yeah. was the idea behind that. Can I mention that the band he'd come from was the Hitmen, I think, and they have, as far as I'm concerned, one of the kind of forgotten new wave songs that should have been a hit. I don't quite know why it wasn't, called Bates Motel. And it's, oh, worth, ha- it's worth having a listen to just in terms of if you imagine someone playing a song like, like Bates Motel and then going straight into the world of Just Can't Get Enough. So it was a bit of a leap, especially for someone who was a classically trained pianist. Mm. Mm. The pressure was now on Martin Gore to write everything. Mm. He, as I said, he'd written two songs on the previous album, two good songs, mm. but it wasn't his band and now he was under intense pressure to write another album and this was going to be released in September 82. So a year later, A Broken Frame comes out. They had a single before then. They did. Which came out at roughly the same time as Only You by Yazoo. Mm. (laughs) So they were uh, competing singles. Well, there was a bit of competition between the two of them for quite a while. Obviously, uh, Mm. Vince Clark leaving left a bit of a bad taste and there was a bit of bad feeling that he stayed on mute, Mm. uh, interestingly. (laughs) So that's kind of weird. I think you're on mute. Yes. (laughs) He uh, obviously had more success than they did, but CU did okay for them. Yeah, yeah. That was January 82, got to number six Mm. in the UK charts. That's not bad. And Martin said, it was the first song I wrote after Vince left, and I think I was just trying to copy his style. Yeah, well, you can hear that in that. I think this album, for me, it's got darker themes than the first album. I think you're seeing a little bit of a hint of what's coming. Mm. Though there were three singles on it, one of which, um, See You, Meaning of Love, and Leave in Silence. Paul Weller was scathing in his review of Leave in Silence. He said, Paul Weller of the Jam, I've heard more melody coming out of an arsehole, he said, in Melody Maker. So that's pretty safe to say he didn't like it. Leave in Silence, to me, was the highlight of the album. I actually bought that single. And I reckon that's a real haunting, wonderful haunting mm-hmm. chorus. Well, that's what I'm saying. There were darker sort of songs, but obviously you and Paul Weller are going to have to agree to disagree. Right? <laughs> well, we, we, we disagree about most things. <laughs> can I throw in a little muso quote here for you, Graham? I think you can hear the emergence of Martin's harmonic structures, the way he write songs is really different to the way that Vince Clark writes them. Mm, oh, yeah, there was definitely a stark difference. Between, yeah, and you can the, hear the that. If you didn't know that two different people wrote those albums, I think you really would 
if you sat and listened mm. to them. Yeah. I think it's an interesting album. I mean, I think there's some good songs on it. The band don't really like it. Yeah, It's yeah, probably their yeah. least favourite album. I think they said something like they didn't like the soppy boy next door songs yeah, yeah, from yeah, this yeah. album. I'm going to just say that I really enjoyed Monument, which is very craftworky. It didn't take long before they came back tumbling down. The singles were great, of course. Yep. Sun and the Rainfall, I really like yep, as well. Yep, That's a yep. great track. There's some really bad lyrics on a photograph of you. The lyrics are just really, really not good. Yeah, but he's he's just starting. He's yeah, just, he is. He's, he's just, just starting. First... I don't I don't think lyrics have ever been a massive thing. No, in no. Depeche Mode's uh, history. I mean, Vince Clark <laughs> basically just wrote the lyrics that sounded good. Words were good. Yeah, yeah. And they yeah. didn't have to mean anything. And I think Martin is can be quite awkward and sort of. Mm. Even, even in the later stuff, some of it's yeah. not quite there. But photograph of you is has got some really awkward stuff on it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, yeah, I actually quite like it on uh, listening mm. to it again. It was a UK number eight hit, so they're going up the charts every time. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Paddy, what did you think of A Broken Frame? Uh, I was onto a little bit of a scam by that stage because I liked Depeche Mode, but I didn't love them. Um, I was like a year or two younger than them. So I was 17, 18, 19 listening to these albums and I was into sort of more serious stuff. But I did have a kind of a sneaking sort of affection for this kind of poppy electronic music. And so I got onto the scam of uh, realising that my sister, my younger sister, quite liked Depeche Mode. So she would get a Depeche Mode album for her birthday. Well, um, there was one every year, so you could do <laughs> yeah, that. yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So no, she was a fan of the band, or at least she smiled and you know played the records a lot when she was given them. But a broken frame was the first one that me and my brother <laughs> gave her for her birthday or, or for Christmas. So somehow these records have ended up in my collection. <laughs> or you just made a tape copy of it before you gave it to her? Uh, yeah, no, uh, absolutely, absolutely. This is similar to when I bought the first few um, Gary Newman albums uh, yeah, for yeah, my yeah. brother. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> they absolutely. Went up in my yeah, book you're going to love this. Just, I'll get back to you shortly. Yeah, yeah no, it's absolute, absolutely the way to go. But A Broken Frame, I listened to it at the time and, yeah, I really liked some of the songs, all the ones you've mentioned. Interestingly, it had a gatefold sleeve with all the lyrics on it and moody-looking photos of the three of them. So they were trying to kind of do something a bit more serious. Mm. They had had a swan wrapped in plastic on the cover of their first, the first album, album yeah. which was a concept that went badly wrong according to the designer of mm. that album cover, never mind anyone else. I think he was retained for subsequent albums. Brian Griffin is his name. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of really good songs on here. I think The Meaning of Love is a terrible, terrible song. Um, <laughs> the film clip is a disaster. From the notes that I made so far, love seems something like one in a sky. It is right up there in terms of lyrics with um, Classic by Adrian Gervitz. We may have talked about that before. I'm going to write a classic. I'm going to write it in an attic. It's a great lyric. It's a great That, Im- yeah. that is... James Joyce's Ulysses compared to the, the, the Many of Love by Depeche Mode. I honestly think that we should devote an entire podcast to that song. <laughs> Gotta write a classic. Dave has said, I think we all feel that A Broken Frame is our weakest album. It's very, very patchy. But there is, again, a kind of a purity to it, like an adolescent. It sort of feels like, it kind of feels real that they're trying to do something more serious, which is just... Well, that's an, what I'm saying. The themes did get a bit yeah, darker. Yeah, yeah. It, it progressed from the first album. Yeah. I mean, just just quickly talking about the cover image, I think that's fantastic, the, yeah, the actual yeah, album, yeah. the photo. And it was featured uh, on the cover of Life 
1990 edition, world's best photographs for that decade. It was yeah. one of those. It looks like it's set in some sort of Ukrainian wheat yeah, field, yeah, but absolutely. it was actually not. It was taken in you know in England somewhere in, uh, yeah, yeah, in, in Cambridgeshire. But yeah, I, I think the cover's a vast improvement. But the album's a bit of a holding pattern, I think, for Depeche Mode. They're not quite mm. sure where they want to go. But that's fair. Martin's been thrown in the deep end. Graham? They pretty much started again. Had to. Yeah, I had to. And um, it was a real credit to him. Like initially, I think he started writing songs in the Vince Clark style, but it didn't take him long. He really developed his own style mm. with songs like uh, Live in Silence. But I also, on this album, really like um, Nothing to Fear, Satellite and Monument and Shouldn't Have Done That. Mommy's annoyed, says go and play. They really took a big step forward on the next album. They did. Are we talking about construction time again? Well, not again. We haven't talked about it yet. Again? Again? If I can just mention the beginning of the bad reviews, maybe... That uh, Melody Maker said regarding a gig of theirs at the time, giving synthesizers to Depeche Mode and expecting them to realise their potential is rather like leaving a home computer on the table at a chimp's tea party. So that's marginally better than Paul Weller's review. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the so backlash what, had begun. Mm, that's right. So what was next for Depeche Construction Mode? Construction time again. Released in August 1983. So they're pumping these albums out super fast. Mm. There's not a lot of time off. This album was recorded at John Fox's studio. Yeah. The Garden. The Garden. Which uh, John Fox of uh, Ultravox and of John Fox yeah. uh, had built himself a nice little studio with yeah. the proceeds of Metamatic. But another thing was on the scene at this point, digital samplers. Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm yes. sorry, if I can just say about The Garden, that it sounds bucolic and rustic and green and so on. But it was actually um, uh, built on a disused uh, factory site in uh, East London. So it was in the middle of nowhere, like this absolute kind of semi-industrial wasteland. Come to the garden. It sounds lovely. (laughs) Daniel Miller at the uh, controls again of that studio. Yes. Mm. But you're right, Graham. This is the period where... SPK and Einstürzende Neubauten were coming to I'm the I'm glad floor. you pronounced that one. I, I I, my German isn't what it, what it ought to be. But yeah, Martin and the rest of the band were really heavily influenced by industrial music at this time. So the Synclavia came to the fore. Mm. Uh, and once again, they're learning how to use this. And yeah, there may have yeah, only been yeah. a couple of them in the UK at this yeah. point. And they're learning how to use it by running around, just getting a microphone and yeah. bashing things and throwing things on the ground and recording yeah. that and then mm. trying to turn it into something. There were a few videos on YouTube um, which have Martin just with a microphone set up somewhere. Yeah. And uh, there was one thing. He was rolling a Rolling rock. a, st- a yeah, stone yeah, along yeah, a window yeah, yeah. A stone yeah. frame. Yeah. And, uh, he was and coming that, up with sounds there. And that more or less did end up in the song Pipeline, I mm. think, that little activity. And there was also, uh, I don't know what song it was in, but there is, uh, they recorded themselves just hitting the side of a, of a construction site, like just a big metal wall. And all of a sudden, you can also hear this <laughs> construction worker going, Oi! <laughs> yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, so, and so that ends up in a song. It yeah, ends up yeah, in a song, yeah. yeah. It's interesting you mentioned... Einstürzende Neubauten. Let's, let's just all pronounce it three different ways. Yeah. Martin Gore at the time said, Metal music people like... Einstürzende Neubauten. ...have good ideas, some of which we may nick, but I can't listen to them. They were very unmusical, <laughs> so, and that, that was their whole yeah, idea, yeah, yeah. to be unmusical. So to take the sounds and the ideas behind it and turn it into 
into something else with the advent of the Synclavier and, and, mm. and bigger and better drum machines like the Drumulator is going to give you more options. Alan Wilder is involved on this album, by yep. the way. He'd been uh, made a full member of the band prior to this, which I think he deserved. Uh, yeah, he certainly absolutely. adds a lot. There are two of his songs on this album in uh, Two Minute Warning and The Landscape is Changing, which are great songs. Mm. I didn't realise that he wrote them. You're talking about Pipeline before, Graham. There's mm -hmm. uh, there's more political themes on this. I think they're kind of engaging with the world more and, and sort of offering opinions on things. They subsequently became bigger in Europe with this sound and maybe these themes, very big in Germany in particular. There are only two singles on it, Everything Counts, which is a great song, and Love in Itself. With the addition of the January 83 non-album track, Get the Balance Right, which is a really good song as well. Got to number six, did we mention that? No, we didn't, but we should. And I was going to say More Than A Party, which I think may be the first song, is very heavily reminiscent of some of these sounds that we're talking about by these bands. SPK were Australian, by the way, and used to have a chainsaw on stage and an yeah. angle grinder and all kinds <laughs> of things. So there was a lot of that in the air at the time, Yeah, absolutely. shall we say. And I will throw in one more song that I love on it called Told You So. Mm. There's also a bit of actual guitar on this album, yeah, which, is, yeah, which yeah. is kind of like almost against everything that they... Also, in you mentioned more than a party. Mm. There is like real piano in there. Oh, okay. When I first heard that, it was after listening to the first two albums, it was just wonderful to hear that organic piano under the electronic music. Yeah. So, mm. Well, you're mm. almost picking it apart trying to hear what's going on on this. Yeah, Listening yeah, to yeah. it now, it's very, very 80s and very reminiscent of what mm. I remember the 80s sounding like. Yeah, yeah. But it was good to hear real guitar on uh, Love in Itself. So, and, yeah, yeah. and then it was nice to hear some real instruments amongst yeah, everything, yeah. so treated and heavily yeah, processed. Mm. Certainly on Love in Itself, which I think is a really good, it's such a great announcement of the change that's happened between the second album and the third album, it just immediately sounds more edgy, more adult, more muscular. Mm. Um, and the uh, guitar by Martin and uh, a piano by uh, Alan, I think, in that sort of instrumental bit. And, yeah, I think it's a really ambitious, very peculiar song and it was a minor hit single as well. Dave said, we used to go into studios and the first thing we'd do, we'd ask where the kitchen was literally for pots and pans and things that we could throw down the stairs and <laughs> record the rhythms. Uh, they would make crashing around and then make into loops. And that was such a feature of this album and the next one. And they sounded like almost a completely different band on about half of construction time again because mm. those songs were so sample heavy. Gareth Jones, who sort of engineered this album, he was credited as Ton Meister, I think, as in Sound Master. Mm. He talks about how difficult it was getting these machines, as you say, to kind of be, be, be synced. The album was, I should say, mixed at Hansa in Berlin as well, which may have contributed 
to the some of the darkness of it. Mm, uh, and of course, Berlin was still divided at that stage. Germany mm. was still divided. And, so, and Hansa was where heroes. Mm. And Lust for Life had been recorded. Yes, um, well, a lot of the Bowie things had been mm, recorded there, yeah. and uh, and Killing Jokes. Well, Killing Jokes were did it about to, to yeah. record this. <laughs> Not quite in the same league as Low and Long John. <laughs> no, 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 that's right. And can I say that I love about two thirds of this album. Like, I think if there's so much going on. I think it's really cleverly done. It's, it's ambitious. Yeah, yeah, really ambitious. Mm. And I think songs like Pipeline, I think Pipeline is just how they kind of constructed that, I think is just like, the, I think the it's really- The pipeline itself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think it's really well done. And Shame is one of my favourite songs as well. And if, Feeling. If only, if only, <laughs> if only, and this is the, the thing that gets me about Depeche Mode every time is that there's often- two or three lines of the lyric that just wreck the song for me <laughs> and shame. It all seems so stupid. It makes me want to give up, but why should I give up when it all seems so stupid? And they sing it twice. <laughs> it's, it's not bad enough that they sing it once. You know what, what's funny about that? I actually really like that line. Really? Yeah, which which is surprising that you really dislike it. Yeah, yeah, I really dislike it. I think it's kind of, I think it's really clever, the inversion of it. But yeah, look, I will agree with you. A lot of the time, even even subsequent albums, of Depeche Mode, there'll be lines in there. I just you could have reworked that. It just sounds kind of awful. <laughs> and yeah, the uh, strummy guitar on And Then, I think. Mm. The Landscape is Changing, I think. Great song. Yeah, yeah. Though, that, that Alan Wilder, those two songs of his are really yeah, impressive. Yeah. 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 The landscape is changing, the landscape is crying. Gary Bushell in Sounds Magazine said, uh, whether the members of Depeche Mode are actually dead or alive is a question that's baffled the medical profession for years. <laughs> These guys are 21 and 22 years old. Yeah. It's like, well, they just why weren't, are you being so cruel? They just weren't considered as cool in those days. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, they just weren't, I guess, and they didn't just really a, do much. It was much. just an easy target. It was yeah, easy they were them. a pop band, and every album, this got to number six. Every album they did got a little mm, bit bigger mm, and a bit bigger. Yeah, I yeah. just want to, if I can, because I've got my little keyboard here, um, deconstruct one of Martin Gore's chord progressions, which I thought was quite sophisticated in comparison to what Vince Clark used to do. Mm. At the end of Everything Counts, the melody kind of goes, um, everything counts in large amounts, which is an E note, a D note, and a C note, just the three notes. Mm. But the chord progression that he uses over the top of this melody is quite interesting because he goes from a D minor, which sounds like this, but the first note of Everything is an E note, so it's like a D minor ninth. And then the counts is a D note, but singing that over an F chord, so adding the D note, it makes it an F add six. The large amounts are simply a G to an A flat. An obvious chord progression to put under that melody is everything counts in large amounts. But the fact that here went everything counts in large amounts, which, um, it's kind of a jazz chord progression, but it works so well within the song. Yeah. Mm. I don't know who was teaching him or leading him at this point, <laughs> but he was making some wonderful artistic choices and musical choices throughout this album. Well, you might say that it came to the fore even more on the next album. Tonight. 
some great reward again, September 1984. So one album a year for yep. the last four years. And again, went up a notch. Number five. Number five. But interestingly, it was a US hit. This is the first kind of inroads they made to America. Reached 51 mm. on the back yeah, of yeah, the yeah. single People Are People. which was a massive hit in Australia as well. This whole album was a big hit here. I remember it very well. I think the mm. video was a large part of that. Mm. And the single in the US got to 13, yeah, which yeah. is uh, which is massive for them. And was probably the first introduction America had to this kind of music. And I think it made a, a big impression on a lot of bands around at the time, your ministries and your Nine Inch Nails and various other mm, people yeah, that went yeah, on yeah. to greater heights with electronic music. Yeah, yeah. It must be said that they're an electronic band. They're still the world's biggest outside of Kraftwerk electronic band that is still kind of going in one form or yeah, another. Yeah. And the, the kind of way they stuck to their guns on that is really interesting, despite, as you say, the critical kind of uh, mauling they took. They had an idea and a vision, and this album takes the, the idea of the previous album even further. I think it's even darker, mm. more ex- exploration of sampling in industrial beats, but yep. with hit singles on it like People Are People, Master and Servant. It's a lot. 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 Like, like. Blasphemous Rumours and Somebody, the B-side of that, which are lovely ballads. But uh, mm-hmm. this this was a, more of a complete album. And amongst Depeche Mode aficionados, one of which I know quite well being my wife, <laughs> this is considered the best of those four albums and you can probably see why. For me, Some Great Reward feels like Construction Time Again Part 2, but just not quite as good. Okay. Because it's obviously a continuation of the, um, as you're saying, the, like the sampling thing but for me the songs just aren't as good it's a bit kind of piecemeal you know it's got their piano ballad and you know i don't think we need a piano ballad on a depeche mode album it's got again i mean people are people is another one of those depeche mode songs with lyrics where you go oh really yeah. Really? And that that was one at the time that really bothered me. I just, yeah, yeah, I just yeah. kind of like couldn't get yeah. past that. And I started to kind of like not turn on them, but I kind of started to feel like, I don't know whether this is for me anymore. <laughs> yeah. And ironically, I looked a lot like Dave Garn at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mistaken oh, for I was going to mention, when I first met you, you looked like Dave Garn. <laughs> people used to yell out in the street, Depeche Mode, Depeche Mode. It was really quite strange because I'm a lot taller than him. But um, is that right? That's, that's right. Huh. Same haircut. Um, <laughs> yeah. I would say that it had a harder sound a bit. Yeah, like yeah, something yeah. to do. The song has a really kind yeah. of. You can hear that coming out of a German nightclub. I want to keep complaining about people are people. Yeah, please do. Uh, Please do. Roy Hay from Culture Club reviewed it in one of the music magazines and he said, I really laughed the first time it came on. This is a bit rich from the band that gave us War is Stupid and People are Stupid. stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Which is equally as annoying (laughs) as a lyric. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the peculiarities about People are People, Gareth Jones had just recorded a fad gadget, a collapsing new people. Watch them collapsing. In the same studio, we were at Hansa again in uh, West Berlin. The song Collapsing New People by Fad Gadget, according to Blixer Bargeld from... Einstürzende Neubauten. Um, <laughs> he says that the 
original tapes from the Fad Gadget song, which the members of Einstürzende Neubauten played on, like they supplied like percussion or whatever, those tapes were integrated into People Are People. So like, let's just use Channel 8 from mm. Collapsing New People by Fad Gadget. So it's that- taking sampling to a whole new level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And if you listen to Collapsing New People... You know, you can kind of go, oh, that sounds quite a bit like People of People. It's a great song. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. Um, can I just throw in here that Martin Gore had actually moved to Berlin by this stage, so that may have had an influence on on the sound and mm. feel of it. Yeah, He'd actually yeah. ditched his long-term girlfriend and taken up with a German Frau, if I can use that oh, term. Yes. Or, he or, had a German, or, or Fraulein. Or Fraulein. Mm. Was, she was a German lady. He had an apartment there and he was heavily into clubbing, <laughs> drinking, going out and having a good time. I think he's yep. um, he left his Christianity behind by this yeah, stage yeah, and apparently. kind of embraced the dark arts. So um, mm. that may have had something to do with it. Can I also throw in that Lie To Me is a very funky, very 80s kind of sounding song. Their stuff doesn't often swing, but Lie To Me most definitely does. And there is another Alan Wilder song in there called If You Want, which is also very good. Mm. Graham? Where were you at this stage well, the, of Depeche the, Mode? The interesting thing I read about Gareth Jones was that he was experimenting with recording atmospheres at Hunter Studio. So bands would play their instruments through large amplifiers, which were recorded with microphones. So instead of going direct into the desk, they'd go from the synth to an amplifier, which would be mic'd up. He created this large arena type sound. I think the role of Gareth Jones is a significant one, and he was an unlikely person to work with him because he was. Um, John Fox described Gareth as a hippie Freudian BBC dropout. Mm. I know what all those words mean. <laughs> but, but not together. Not <laughs> in not one sure, sentence. I'm not sure how they work together. And as for Gareth, he was extremely uninterested in working. With Depeche Mode mm. at the time. He said he wasn't interested in pop music, but John Fox was insistent. He said, you know, you really should. And, uh, yeah, Gareth said that when he met Depeche Mode, he said, funnily enough, they seemed to be like normal human beings. So That's a thought, positive, I'm taking He, he said, oh, they seemed all right. So he worked with them and, and uh, yeah, the, the, mm-hmm. the rest is history. I also wanted to say that People Are People was used for the 1984 Summer Olympics in Germany. So I think the Olympics were in LA, but... Um, it became the German theme yeah, for the 1984 the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it went to number one and it was their first number <laughs> one ever, which is pretty cool because uh, I can't imagine Channel 9 here using a Depeche Mode song as a, you know, as a theme to any Olympics. Um, or I, I can't imagine a German song being the uh, English theme, the British theme for the <laughs> Olympic Games. That's true <laughs> as well. Yes. Um, 99 Luftballoons. <laughs> <laughs> Just wave your Union Jacks to that. My favourite songs were Something to Do, Lie to Me, People Are People. It doesn't matter which, I don't know, is that the ballad that you're referring that, uh, to? There are two ballads. It doesn't matter. It was uh, is more than just piano. Whereas, yes. Yeah. The song It Doesn't Matter I'm particularly impressed with mm. because it's a very sophisticated arrangement of synth sounds. I am But it's not like one standard mono bass sound and, and a chord and, and maybe a little... Mm. The instruments are placed I think that, around that, the spectrum. Is that an Alan Wilder song? 
I'm not sure. No, if you want is the Alan Wilder song. Ah, okay. But Alan may have had a bit to do with the arrangement of this because I think it's oh, it was quite a sophisticated it. thing. Um, but I'll play a bit of that. Master and Servant and yeah. Blasphemous Rumours. We could talk about Blasphemous Rumours. That's another one with the... Um, the lyrics are a little bit hard. <laughs> it aren't is. They? It is. Well, he didn't want to start any blasphemous rumours. That's how the song well, started. So, uh, for me, like I was maybe nineteen or, or so when I heard blasphemous rumours, and I thought, well, this song's a bit adolescent. Mm. You know, and if you're an adolescent describing a song as adolescent, then yeah, it just didn't feel like something for, for like something bad happens to someone, and that means that God's got a sixth sense of humour. It feels like the kind of thing you'd think when you were fifteen or sixteen or something, and it just mm. felt a bit. Oh, I, I agree. Like I thought that at the same time too. Yeah, yeah. Like... I mean, I I like a lot about blasphemous rumours. There, there's a lot of good music in the song. Mm. I think as a structure of a lyric, it's pretty clever because in a sense it revolves around the mother, the mother's reaction to what's happened to her daughter mm. with the tear falling from her eye at the end. You know, that's quite you know emotionally sophisticated for a bunch of young blokes mm. to be singing about. It's just unfortunate that it's kind of pinned down, this song, by this chorus with this fairly kind of simplistic kind Where of they idea. rhymed rumour with humour. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Even Smash Hits, the pop magazine, wasn't that impressed by Blasphemous Rumours. They said it was a routine slab of gloom. And it was a fellow called Neil Tennant mm. um, oh, yeah. who, who said that. And he went on to record several slabs of gloom with Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> so, <laughs> His own maybe, slabs of Maybe gloom. he meant that as a compliment. Ooh, uh, I like this slab mm. of gloom. <laughs> <laughs> I loves me routine slabs of gloom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this album is... Another jumping off point for where they will go next. Mm. The first, next proper album is Black Celebration a couple of years later. These four albums are a really interesting signpost and indicator to where Depeche Mode will go with their greatest works, which are like the late 80s and early 90s, as you say. But because we, we confine ourselves to this period, we're only going to talk about them in the context of their beginnings, I suppose. Mm. But each album is really different from the other one. In, not really different, but there's progression. Is what I'm yeah, trying to yeah, say. You, you see, you see a definite. You see, and when you think about, there's a year between them. I mean, think about trying to tour and come up with a new album, mm. particularly after the first album when your songwriter and main proponent of your success leaves you before the album's even released. <laughs> Most bands would crumble under yeah. that stress and just go, "Well, that's it for us. We've had our moment in the sun. That was fun." I think it's an incredible testament to them that they continued mm. on from strength to strength and got better and better and better and just became, well, yeah, the biggest electronic band in history and they're still going in mm. some form or another given that um, Andy Fletcher died recently there's only the two of them left yeah. and they don't seem to be able to reconcile with Alan Wilder who had a lot to do with their success and a lot of Depeche Mode fans would say they ought to have gotten him back years ago mm. uh, sadly they don't seem to have been able to come to that arrangement we were talking before about the podcast I know we're sort of getting to the end of it about what makes them so unique and I, and I just wanted to throw in just how normal they are they yeah. just seem like really, really regular guys who just happen to find themselves in this position of, oh, this is working, well, we'll keep going and we'll keep going. Obviously they're not because nobody can be whatever millions and millions selling album band that they mm. are if they're just regular guys. But they come across as very humble. As an, a little sample of how down-to-earth and ordinary Depeche Mode are, my wife is a massive fan of theirs and travelled down to Sydney for their gig in 1991. 
her and her friend queued outside the Horden Pavilion the entire day to get the best seats at the, uh, the best uh, spot at the front of the stage. They were the first people in the queue, and when they, do- they opened the doors, they found they actually had balcony seats. <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible seats. They were so disappointed, they turned away and walked walked back outside. Uh, they were spotted by the tour manager at the time, seeing their despondent little faces, and said, you know, what's wrong, girls? And they told them the story, and he said, just a minute. He walked off, came back with backstage passes and tickets for them, and said after the show, come and meet the guys. <laughs> Which is exactly what happened. So they were able to, to go. They had their terrible seats for the show. And after the show, they went backstage and met, met all the guys who were fantastic and super down to earth and let them hang around for about an hour afterwards, which <laughs> is just something you would never hear happen these days or even then with a massive band. And I think that's a great indicator of they never forgot they came from Basildon. <laughs> I don't know. That was my, my take on them as a band. I think yeah. they're quite unique in that. They started out really poppy. And then got darker, whereas most bands start out the other way mm. and reach their second or third album and decide we better write some hits. Yeah. You yeah. know, your OMDs and whoever else, not even electronic bands, any bands. But they've gone the other way and kind of just done whatever they wanted. For a band to start off as these four shy young blokes and, you know, we were talking about, about Dave earlier on with his troubled adolescence but but he was still sufficiently reticent that he kind of refused to go on before their first gig, their very first gig, he said, I can't do it, I can't do it. And that is not a typical springboard <laughs> for a pop and rock stardom. So for them to go from the composition of sound in the kind of church halls with their kind of dinky electronic music, not, not really knowing what they're doing, to go from that in 1979, 1980 to some great reward in 1984 where you, you can see that they're on the verge of doing something really interesting, really big. They already are doing something really interesting and and really big. They've become more successful, or certainly their albums have kind of gone gone up and up the charts. They've already had a string of hit singles. They are expressing their identity in all sorts of unusual ways, including Martin's fashion sense, wearing skirts and wearing whatever the hell he wanted to. And his dress sense was a symbol of the Uh, individuality of the band, the single-minded determination and just doing whatever the hell they want to do. You could tell that they were just going to keep on doing what they wanted to do. They were on an independent label. They had that freedom, thanks to Daniel Miller and good decisions they made. And, uh, yeah, the the rest is history for Depeche Mode and there may be more history to come. And lastly, R.O.P. Andy Fletcher. (laughs) 